California is considering new regulations for a recreational marijuana industry that now includes more than 1,500 retailers. The idea is to put health warnings on cannabis products like the labels on cigarettes, and some will address the mental health risks from smoking pot. April Domboski of member station KQED reports. For a lot of grandparents, your first grandchild holds a special spot in your heart. For Elizabeth Kirkeldy, that is Corey. He was the sweetest little kid in the world. I had a very close relationship with him. Corey was top of his class in high school and a talented jazz bassist. By the time he graduated, he was a serious pot smoker, too. And for Corey, pot didn't just make him paranoid. It also made him psychotic. He started hearing voices. They were going to kill him, and there were people coming to eat his brain. I mean, weird, weird stuff. After high school, Corey came to live with his grandmother for a couple of years, here at her home in Napa, California. She thought maybe she could help. Now she says that was naive. I, I woke up one morning and no Corey anywhere. Well, it turns out he'd been running down Villa Lane here totally naked. Corey was diagnosed with schizophrenia. His grandmother blames the pot. The drug use activated the psychosis is what I, I really think. It's what many psychiatrists think, too. Studies show people who use cannabis are four times more likely to develop schizophrenia. For people who smoke every day or use high-potency products, the risk is six times higher. Yale psychiatrist Deepak Cyril D'Souza says there are things states can do to reduce the harms. Such as have limits on the amount of THC in products that are sold, have clear labeling about that so that people who buy it know what they're getting into. That's exactly what California wants to do. A proposed law would require pot businesses to include warnings about mental health risks in their advertising and on product labels. They'd have to be set against a bright yellow background, use black font, and take up a third of the front of the package. Opponents say this is excessive and expensive. Lindsay Robinson runs the California Cannabis Industry Association, which represents legal pot businesses. The heart of the issue is that there's a massive unregulated market in the state. Legal dispensaries turned over $1.3 billion in state tax revenue last year. On top of that, Robinson says they're struggling to keep up with existing regulations. And adding more requirements just makes it more likely that they'll go out of business. The only real option if they fail out of the legal system is to shut their businesses altogether or to operate underground. Some people, even parents like Elizabeth Kirkeldy, are skeptical the labels will work. Her grandson, Corey, is stable now, living with his dad. But she's not sure a yellow warning would have stopped him when he was a teen. They're just not going to pay attention. But I do, I mean, I, if it helps even one person, great. Doctors like Cyril D'Souza are optimistic. Regulation worked for cigarettes. Smoking among kids has plummeted in the last decade. He credits warning labels, education campaigns, and marketing restrictions. And he says applying the same health strategies to cannabis is long overdue. For NPR News, I'm April Domboski in San Francisco. So crazy, it's like we never left. The Cows, Gusty Renegade, Program 2 of 2 on Wednesday, July 20, 2022, so I have been told. So, in case we have folks 
who they just tuned in at our normal time and what there was another program I've been saying we were gonna do our recap we've been broadcasting for 13 years so let us go back and revisit what were we talking about in 2013 back when in exactly two states cannabis recreational cannabis was legal what were we talking about with regards to uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, medical doctor, who was with us at the time, who told us, hey, I have some concerns about this can't recreational cannabis use. And wow, like some of it, the, the dosage, some of the, the cannabis now is so much more potent that I've worked with clients, medical doctor. I've worked with clients where they're exhibiting symptoms of psychosis. Seems like it's a correlation with the cannabis. We talked about this in 2013. Many of our listeners were skeptical. Fast forward all the way to 2022. What did we just hear at NPR? Warning labels on cannabis. And in fact, they had, uh, I guess maybe all things are timed correctly. Uh, in the LA Times, uh, I shared it this past week. Uh, they had an editorial Legal pot needs better warning labels. They're talking about this exactly. And they even talk about, hey, the legislation currently got watered down some, but even that is a good start. One, ode to Dr. Welsing, who again talked about this 10 years ago. And I told our guest for today, man, we have parents like forget all the other stuff like we can quibble about you know telling people about their individual liberties and all the rest of it but I mean hey parents people who have young folks that they care about hey listen up we have cows listeners who are parents who have children where they said exactly what Dr. Francis Cress Welsing said exactly what they said in California about why we need to have warning labels on these products. My child whose brain is still developing as a teenager. My child is showing having mental health problems. And I think it's related to their use of cannabis. That should be more than enough to have serious Let's make sure that we're thinking about this, understanding some of these concerns and having lots of great information to share with our children. If we are parents or even if you have nieces, nephews, cousins that you care about and want to make sure that they make great informed decisions. Our guest for today's program, a pediatrician and public health expert who serves as senior advisor at the Public Health Institute. Uh, she coordinates their prevention policy group and improves PHI's portfolio of programs in prevention of non-communicable diseases in the world. Uh, she's been a big part of the effort to get the warning labels affixed to cannabis products in the state of California. So glad we could finally get her on the program with us. Joining us live, Dr. Lynn Silver. Dr. Silver, are you with us? Hello, Gus. Can yes, you hear me? Yes, ma'am. We can hear you crystal clear. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, with you this evening, and I'm so glad you're doing this this uh, segment. 
what can I do for you? Um, ah, we have lots of questions. Let's see. For folks who are parents, I'll say at the beginning, go ahead, dial in. If you're a parent, do not uh, wait till the last minute or what have you. Go ahead and, and get a hand up if you have questions to ask Dr. Silver, medical doctor. Um, for our listeners, this might be, uh, for some of them, their first time hearing about you and the work that you do at PHI. Uh, what is it that you do, Dr. Silver? I work on preventing disease, on um, trying to change factors in our environment, whether it's food or physical activity or uh, products that are dangerous, so that they're less likely to make people sick, keeping people out of the hospital. And when cannabis was being legalized in California back in 2016, we looked at um, the way it was being legalized and said, you know, hey, even if you're in favor of legalization, it looks like we're forgetting everything we learned from tobacco and alcohol here, and maybe we should be a little more careful. So we started a project called Getting It Right from the Start, and it's been working on trying to um, promote public policy that can protect kids and protect uh, youth and reduce harms from cannabis, even as cannabis is getting legalized. Because, I mean, some good things have come out of this. There's been a 96% reduction in people getting arrested for cannabis possession in California, and that's the good news. But just like nobody should go to jail, nobody should end up in the hospital either. Um, and that's the part that we think has to be balanced so you can allow legal access, but we have to make sure that the products are safer and people are informed and they understand the risks and how to use this more safely and who shouldn't use it um, so that they don't end up in the hospital or more, with more serious health problems. Um, you know, cannabis, most people who use it, you know, most people get high at a party, um, they're going to be okay, but there is a significant minority of people who are not okay. Um and people need to be aware of that, and we need to try and prevent that. And the stories that you were just talking about, uh, particularly about psychosis and schizophrenia, are some of the most serious um, and really worrisome ones associated with the way our cannabis market is evolving here in the, in the U.S. and many states across, across the country. Awesome introduction. Again, parents, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate so that's great to give some of your background uh in in terms of wanting to getting it right from the start in terms of how legalization was going to be approached in california from what you said it doesn't sound like you're opposed to cannabis legalization as such is that is that accurate well, I definitely am in favor of decriminalization and not sending hundreds of thousands of people to jail for cannabis possession. Um, my favorite approach would be what Quebec is doing, which is that they have a public monopoly that has stores and allows legal access in a nice, safe environment to cannabis, but it's not advertising, it's not pushing it, it's not trying to maximize you know, sales and make as much money off of it as possible. It's just trying to substitute um, that whole clandestine illegal market with um, a road pathway for legal access, um, but not one that's going to be seeking to, to maximize its profit. Because where we get into trouble is what, what I call the coca colization of cannabis. Um, you know, when it goes from being a traditional botanical plant that maybe was 3 to 5% um, 
THC to being these highly industrialized, purified products in flavors like grape and vanilla and chocolate um, or edibles, you know, luscious, delicious edibles um, or concentrates that are, you know, 90% THC. And then all of a sudden, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, Coca-Cola didn't cause much diabetes when they sold it in six-ounce bottles. But then when they started selling it in family size, you know, 24-ounce size, people started getting sick and getting diabetes. And same thing with cannabis. If you turbocharge it, jack it up there, um, people start getting into more trouble. And that's what's happening. Hmm. The it cow. always has some risks. Those risks are getting a lot worse. Mm. Increasing risk. Increasing risk. At least people should be informed about that. Why is it uh, you think, Dr. Silver, that the model that you mentioned in Quebec, which is not, hey, let's try to make, let's commercialize it, let's promote it and try to make as much money as we can. Why hasn't that model been promoted more widely? Uh, you know, it was used pretty widely in alcohol after prohibition, and many states had, you know, state alcohol stores, and 17 states still have some form of out public alcohol monopoly, um, as, as do a number of Canadian provinces, and it worked. It, you know, you had less binge drinking, less alcoholism in places that followed the alcohol monopoly model, um, and we're seeing similar findings in cannabis use in Canada with Quebec compared to other provinces, um, less increases in youth. Uh, it's not being considered more widely in the U U.S. because the legalization process um, has been driven mostly by money, um, you know, or maybe early on by idealists and true believers and people who were motivated by the belief in uh, medical benefits from cannabis. Um, but today, the major coalition that's uh, pushing for federal legalization is funded by Altria Tobacco, uh, one of the biggest tobacco companies in the world. Um, that it's no longer, you know, kind of long-haired farmers from Humboldt County or uh, wounded veterans. Um, we're talking about major um, industrial interests, including Constellation Alcohol, Altria Tobacco, and others uh, getting involved in the cannabis industry, looking uh, greedily to its expansion uh, in part to replace falling sales from tobacco products. We talked about that way back when the tobacco industry, because lots fewer younger people uh, smoke. When I say younger people, like 20s and under, lots fewer of those groups smoke today than previously. Like, hey, they could be totally saved if, you know, THC becomes even more widespread in 19 states in Washington, D.C. and counting. Um, I have been trying to get information about this. You are you a parent as well, Dr. Silver or no? I am. I have two children and three stepchildren. Wow. Okay. So five altogether. Right on. Okay. Right on. <laughs> Hard work being a parent. Um, I've been trying to find out, do, do you know of any information with regards to risks for cannabis consumption for moms during pregnancy? Because that's one where I've asked and a lot of people have just said, hey, it just there's not enough research done. I'm not sure. Do you know? Oh, no. There's plenty of research. Oh, let's there's hear it. quite a bit of research. Um, so... You know, one thing that's very clear is if you uh, smoke cannabis during pregnancy, you're more likely to have a low birth weight baby. Um, that is the same thing that happens if you smoke tobacco. Um, and it's not a good outcome. 
Um, and especially if you're talking about the black community, you know, I, I finished my pediatric training in 1986 and my public health training. And one of the biggest health disparities that we were working on, you know, what is that? Oh God, nearly 40 years ago, uh, was black white disparities and low birth weight and premature babies. And that problem hasn't gotten away. It's still there. Um, you know, so we risk exacerbating areas that are already, already causing, um, significant health inequities like low birth weight. Um, if cannabis is used more widely during pregnancy, the other uh, area of effects that's very concerning in addition to low birth weight uh, is that the National Institutes of Health has this major national study looking at um, cognitive development of U.S. children. And one of the first publications looked at 11,000 kids who were age nine um, and found that the 7% or so who had been exposed to cannabis while their mothers were pregnant had a series of developmental issues, um, some early signs of psychosis and other neurological and psychological changes that were quite worrisome. Um, so that is uh, evidence that there may be long-term uh, harms to children who are exposed in utero um, in addition to the risk of low birth weight. The risk of low birth weight was one of the findings of the big study uh, review done by the National Academies of Science back in 2017. Uh, so it's pretty consensual. Uh, and a number of other papers have come out since that, that cannabis use is associated with low birth weight. So there's no question women should not use it when they're pregnant. They should not use it when they're breastfeeding. And yet, um, there was one study somebody did you know, they called up all the dispensaries in Colorado and pretended to be a pregnant woman who was nauseous and asked what they should do. And two-thirds of them uh, recommended that they, you know, use pot to, to treat their nausea. Uh, you absolutely should not do that. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says do not use uh, weed when you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, and that's one of the warnings that we're trying to make much more uh, obvious and clear to people in the California bill that you were talking about. Breastfeeding, that's so important. Being mom is such a important job. That is, oh, being the best mom, breastfeeding. Like, I forgot all about that. When you use, consume uh, THC products, that does go to the breast milk. Wow. I, that's why. Go straight to junior. Ah. Uh, that's why it's so important. Talk to medical professionals, mm -hmm. medical doctor. Um. Well, now I feel kind of foolish because I was going to ask because I've heard that people say, well, what about morning sickness and being able to use something with THC to get the mom to be able to, you know, get a little bit of nourishment in during that time period. But wow, if there's how how widespread is this risk, uh, Dr. Silver, for low uh, birth rate and then maybe developmental delays for the offspring once they're born? Is this widespread or is this very low risk? Um, well, what we've seen in California is that use of cannabis during pregnancy has almost doubled. So in 2009, it was 4.5% uh, of women reported using cannabis during pregnancy, and a decade later, it had gone up to 8%. Um, so with all the marketing and the hype about cannabis being a wellness product, um, a lot of women are thinking that it's a safe, natural product that they can use during pregnancy, and it absolutely is not. Um, so there's just a lot of misinformation out there, uh, and that's very worrisome. I don't think we have 
good data to say, you know, what percentage of low birth weight cases in the nation are due to this problem uh, yet. Um, but I prefer to just really get the word out there. And I know every pregnant woman should know, no, you don't use this when you're pregnant. Um, it should be clear as day for anybody who walks into a dispensary. It should be really clear on cannabis products. It should be on every advertisement for cannabis, and it's not. The Cows, Dr. Lynn Silver, air on the side of caution for sure. You know, right now in, in the state of California, the warning not to use when you're pregnant is in 6.5. Sometimes it's hidden on the back of peel-off labels or um, in, uh, let's see, some of, the, some of them are inside the box. You only see it if you buy the product and open it. Sometimes my favorite was a can of mints where you have to, I don't know if you've seen it on cosmetic products where you have to peel off the labels to see the ingredients, and they're doing that for cannabis products, too, and that's the only place you can find a pregnancy warning on something. Wow. That's so tricky. <laughs> With the, uh, I was telling listeners. Gus, yeah. can you still hear me? Oh, Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Are you able to hear me? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Let's see. Can you hear me, Dr. Uh, Dr. Lynn? Can you hear me? Let's see. Dr. Lynn, can you hear me? Uh, listeners, are you all able to hear me, or am I not coming in okay? Let's see. Uh, we'll take a quick... I can hear you, Dr. Lynn. Uh, let's see. Can you hear me, retired firefighter? Can you hear me, or am I not being heard? Let's see. Oh, it looks like I was. Can you hear me, retired firefighter? Or am Gus, I... can you be heard? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hello. I I got cut off for a minute there. I just Gosh, your voice just came what back is going on. on. This service is provided in high definition by. Access code accepted. Right. There are 14 participants in the conference. Q&A session has started. The recording has started. Hello? Okay. Can I be heard now? Yes. Okay. Awesome. I don't know what happened. I was trying to get to my next question, and then my sound, I guess, wasn't being picked up. Much obliged to everybody for being patient uh, and retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I was saying before I got, I guess, whatever went down with my audio, uh, the L.A. Times, uh, I was telling folks they did that editorial uh, this past weekend, and they were talking about the importance of Dr. Silver and all the folks that she have been, her cohorts that have been working to get legislation passed uh, to make it very clear and no tricky marking uh, with regards to uh, the warnings and potential harm of cannabis consumption. Uh, they, the editorial it said that they watered it down from what you originally proposed. What are some of the, the changes that were made to the bill as it's kind of worked its way through Congress in California? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the original, this bill, which um, we wrote and has been supported by California's pediatricians, obstetricians, gynecologists, uh, emergency docs, psychiatrists, uh, tons of people, L.A. County, um, originally would have required that a third of the front of each product be occupied by a rotating warning 
a graphic rotating warning, so a picture and a short message, and that message would alternate um, between uh, different issues like don't use during pregnancy, do not use when you're driving, driving white highs, DUI, um, the risk of psychosis. Um, this is the approach to warning labels that's used internationally now for tobacco and that the FDA will be adopting effective next year on cigarettes. There's a lot of research that shows that these shorter graphically illustrated warnings get people's attention, they retain the information better, it's more likely to work. Um, and there have been a number of research studies done that show the same thing uh, for cannabis, including one we did. So our original bill would have required these prominent rotating warnings, both on products and on any ads. So if somebody stuck a billboard up in your neighborhood um, that your kid passes every day on their way to school, it would at least have a warning label up there saying, for example, uh, use by youth uh, can uh, cause long-term harm or some of these other messages so your kid would at least get the other message um, or your pregnant wife would at least get the other message. Um, and then it would also have required a brochure with the warnings and information on safer use that would be provided to every uh, customer coming into a, a retail establishment. Uh, so that made it through the California Senate, and then when it hit the assembly, the cannabis industry uh, woke up and mobilized and tried really hard to kill it all together. Uh, they didn't kill it all together, but they greatly weakened it. Um, so what's left in the bill right now is a one-page flyer that all cannabis retailers will have to have in their stores and to offer, not necessarily to give, but to offer to all new consumers um, with information on safer use. But it does have to have the information on these key health risks, including psychosis and schizophrenia, driving, not using during pregnancy, um, risks of increased suicide, uh, risks with heavy use, and the risks of these high THC products, um, and it also requires adding uh, to the product label warnings about mental health effects, um, but it did leave that to the discretion of the state agency, so our state agency is very much um, influenced by the cannabis industry, and I don't know whether they're just going to give some general mealing mouth statement about cannabis may cause mental health problems or whether we'll be clear and specific in ways that will um, really uh, get people's attention like cannabis causes psychosis and schizophrenia or use of cannabis is associated with psychosis and schizophrenia. Um, so that's what's left of the bill, but it's still an important bill because up till now the state hasn't acknowledged these problems. It hasn't um, recognize that cannabis can cause these serious mental health problems, um, and it really hasn't effectively countered the messaging of the cannabis industry that cannabis is this benign wellness product, even as, in fact, what the industry is doing is turbocharging the product so much that they've become quite a bit more dangerous. Turbocharging. That's language. In fact, she had, she had two there turbocharging and mealy mouth that is one of my favorite words in the english language uh i look for every opportunity you mealy mouth uh i love it um i was gonna ask but i got paused there like now wait a minute dr silver you said increased suicide now wait uh the evidence evidence increased suicide from cannabis 
Yeah. There was a lot of debate about it, but last year um, the NIH published a study they did themselves, but lead author was the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, Dr. Volkow. Um, they studied over a quarter of a million people, and they looked at whether you were thinking about suicide, whether you'd made a plan for suicide, whether you'd attempted suicide, and they found significant increases in suicide risk even in people who did not have serious depression, um, and that risk was directly linked to the frequency of cannabis use. So the more often you were using it, the more likely you were to have these issues. So we talked to a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers who were sort of self-medicating with cannabis, thinking that this is going to help their stress, that it's going to help their anxiety, um, their depression in many cases. There is a significant amount of industry advertising out there saying you can treat depression with cannabis, which is not true. Um, and, in fact, what may be happening in many of these individuals is that they're actually increasing their risk of suicide. I think one of the most heartbreaking um, parts of the work I've been doing for the last four years is we've met with a lot of parents, um, parents of kids who developed psychosis and um, went into downward spirals, developed suicidal ideation, attempted to take their lives or successfully took their lives um, after starting to use cannabis heavily and typically products like vapes and dabs that are very high potency cannabis. Um, and they just tell story after story of this. And one of them is, you know, in a neighbor of mine in Berkeley where I live, um, the support group for parents has grown enormously. Um, there's a family, uh, you know, Barton Hazel Bright, whose son Kevin developed severe psychosis um, and eventually uh, took his own life. Um, so, you know, these were more anecdotal stories for a long time, but this huge study that the National Institutes of Health uh, did uh, really is firming up the evidence that there is a strong association um, with suicidality, and it's um, extremely worrisome. Our suicide rates nationally have risen a lot over the last few years. Uh, we don't know how much of that may be associated with cannabis use, but just like psychosis, these are such serious things. Why would we not be doing everything we can to prevent them and to alert people to the risk? Why would we not be regulating the cannabis market in ways that can make it safer and reduce the risks that use will cause these kinds of problems. You know, reducing the amount of THC in products, uh, labeling to alert people to these issues, making the risks clear, um, limiting advertising and marketing or putting warnings on it so people at least know what they're getting into. Wow. That would count as evidence, I reckon. Wow. Um, I think it's also really important. I was telling folks we started out, so this is our second program of the day, and we just we revisited some of the content from 2013 when we talked about some of these very same issues. And I said, wow, I mean, it, was, it really was uh, the movie, you know, Back to the Future. Like, we went back in time. At that time, there were only two states that had legal cannabis. Now it's 19... Washington, D.C. And I said, man, 
like what you just said dab shatter I don't even think that those products existed in 2013 and that was a part of the hey this is not if you you know consumed cannabis uh, if you're an older person if you consumed cannabis uh, when you were younger or in college went to some parties or whatever and did or what have you great this is not the same cannabis and even the way that people are consuming the product has totally changed like when you were i don't i don't know if people caught that or not but you were saying they used a torch to heat the product some of these different products just can you talk because these are the high potency supercharged products that we're talking about that i don't think all the folks are familiar with this is not just crumbling herb you're absolutely right i mean i'm 64 <laughs> so when i went to college uh weed was you know a plant that you rolled in a joint and it was three to five percent thc and some people still did have these problems of psychosis and other ill effects from it, but it was much less common, and they were much less likely to develop um, really addiction and, and daily use. Since that time, the flower, you know, the, the weed for rolling a joint that's being sold in dispensaries now is between 16 and 30% more or less. Um, so it's, you know, five to ten times as strong as the flower in the 1970s. And then there are, is this whole new industrial market of stuff that just didn't exist. So, I mean, hashish existed. There were some, like, physical ways of concentrating cannabis that people used historically. But uh, now it's chemical extraction processes that make the liquid that goes into vape cartridges. It makes waxes and resins. It makes this brittle stuff that looks like broken glass that people call shatter that you vaporize with a torch um, and inhale, um, and that inhaled cannabis gives you a really, really high-dose uh, shot of THC, um, and vape and dabbing is one of the most rapidly growing um, ways of using, and it's also one of the most addictive and the most likely to cause problems because of this very high THC dose that people are getting. Um, and there's, you know, waxes and rosins and Rick Simpson oil and, you know, a whole bunch of things that I had never heard of until I started working on this project uh, that are out there. And then there's also edibles. So, um, you know, if you sell a can of beverage, it used to be that a can couldn't have more than a single dose. Now they're letting a can have the equivalent of a package or 10 doses in it. You know, so the natural thing to do if you get an eight ounce can of something is to, you know, chuggle up the whole can. Well, take a look what's in it because it may be 10 doses of cannabis in that can in California. Um, and other states may vary. Um, so if you drank that whole can, you would be very, very, very stoned. Um, the same thing um, with other edibles. And then, in case you didn't realize it, there's this whole other market that's let loose across our nation, which is hemp-derived products. Um, and right now in many states, we're also seeing, even outside the legal cannabis market, um, products derived from industrial hemp. And industrial hemp is nothing but the same cannabis product with less THC in it. But the chemists go to work and they take that industrial hemp product and they turn it into the, exactly the same stuff, which is psychoactive THC products and they sell it in smoke shops and vape shops that are not age-gated so your 10-year-old can walk in there 
and buy a you know Rice Krispie bar with 300 milligrams of THC in it. Um, so parents, be really aware of that. Warn your kids. Um, take a look at what's being sold in your neighborhood. Uh, it's going to take a lot of state and local action. I mean, I would recall the first warnings came out about cigarettes in 1950. You know, we've been working on tobacco control for the last 70 years to try and reduce tobacco use. Um, the cannabis market is just launching, and if we don't start to take action at the state, local, and federal level to make sure that it's a safer market, you know, we're going to end up taking 100 years to fix this problem. Um, so I really hope that people become aware of this, take action in your communities uh, to make sure that if cannabis is being legalized, it's being done with a lot more attention to safety, to limits on products, to informing people, to limiting advertising and marketing, uh, maybe even to just being available in a, um, you know, in a public monopoly store or a nonprofit monopoly store that's not trying to make as much money as possible. Hmm. What's your response to folks who say, uh, Dr. Silver, that you're painting with too broad of a brush because people who consume flour, who let's call it old school, uh, who just consume the flour product, however mm-hmm. they do so, that that is vastly different from all of these high potency products that shatter and dab and everything else that you talked about that, Hey, I'm not using a torch for anything. This is the same old rolling a joint or whatever else. And I don't think that this should be subject. I don't think people should be thinking that just this alone uh, is going to cause me to be psychotic or suicidal or having all these mental health problems. You would say. So first thing I'd, I'm not, I think, don't think anyone's saying that most people who use pot are going to become suicidal or psychotic. You know, people say, oh, you're just going back to reefer madness. And there was, you know, a history of racist and misleading characterization of people who use pot as they were immediately going to, you know, flip out and become violent and, you know, madness and so on. Um, And that was never true. So most people don't have that. Um, but a significant minority of people, maybe 10 to 20% of people who use pot may develop dependency. It's more likely if they start really young and they may develop these more serious uh, issues. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about something that's used by a large percentage of the population, 10 to 20% of them is still a very big number. You're talking millions of people. Um, so it's not a small problem. It's a big problem, even though you know, the majority of people who use pot will not have this happen to them, but they probably will know somebody that it's happening to if you ask around. Um, so it's one of those things that's pretty frequent, but it's it's not affecting everybody. Um, but just smoking a joint, you know, again, as our former Surgeon General said, this is not your mama's marijuana. Um, and that joint may be five or ten times more potent. And so we are seeing um, negative effects, including psychosis, with just smoking flour. It's not, uh, especially this new, more potent flour. So some countries have limited flour to 10 or 15 percent THC, um, and the U.S. has not. Uh, the states which have legalized have not. Um, a lot of these harms could be reduced by backtracking on some of the changes in what's being sold 
um, that are making the problems more serious and more widespread. And we should do that really quickly. Um, there hasn't been a lot of appetite for doing that. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing. The U.S. Senate, the NIH, um, all these very authoritative figures have all come out, the National Academies of Science, and said this rapid increase in potency is dangerous. It's going to cause harm. We need to do something about it. But really, um, very little has been done. New York and Connecticut are taxing um, by potency, Illinois as well, I believe. Connecticut has put some limits on it. Um, but the work to really try and reverse this turbocharging is, is just starting. Um, and we haven't gotten very far yet. The industry is moving so much faster. And um, when you try and do anything to protect public health, they come out and say, oh, anything you do, there's a big illicit market out there. There's a big bad illicit market. Anything you do is going to favor the illicit market. You shouldn't do anything. <laughs> but we just can't give in to that kind of logic. I think um, there is a big problem of an illicit market, but if we're going to build a legal market, we have to build a safer legal market for the long term um, and one that people can use with as little uh, risk to their health and well-being as possible. Um, so, you, you know, so people who want to get high can get high, but they can get high with much less risk of ending up in the hospital. Um, and there are ways to do that. It's not it's not possible. There will always be some risk, but there can be a lot less than our current cannabis market is um, is exposing people to. Hmm. I wanted to nab some of our parents, see if they had questions for Dr. Lynn Silver, but I wanted to ask because just before you came on with us, I made the comment that we were revisiting 2013 back when Obama was in the White House and everything, and I said... I suspect it would have been hard for any of us at that time to envision that there would be basically now a three-year global health pandemic that, you know, from time to time to time would shut down jobs, school, all kinds of things uh, to where sometimes children, young people might be stuck in the house for weeks at a time and got their dab and all the rest of it. And I just said, man, like all the reports that I've seen about the mental health crisis over the past almost three years now, and particularly for young people and all the stress that they've had, uh, what is cannabis a factor in all of that over the past couple of years? I know that might be a lot to extrapolate. Do you have any thoughts, Dr. Silver? You know, the data seem to suggest um, that why use in adults continued to go up, and we saw a big increase in use by pregnant women in California during the pandemic. Um, Nash, the national study showed a decrease in youth use during the pandemic, and a lot of kids reporting that it got harder to get pots. So um, that was kind of a positive surprise <laughs> that we saw that after uh, that we saw that modest reduction. In, in youth use, I think that was 2020 data um, or 2021 data um, from the National Monitoring the Future study of, you know, 12th, 9th, uh, 9th, I think it's uh, 9th, 10th, and 12th graders or something like that. Um, but use in adults did not go down and, in fact, um, increased in many places. And we've seen in adults in California, for example, a tripling of the percentage of adults who are using every day 
and every day or nearly every day is kind of a red flag for the people who are likely to get in trouble with it. Um, and that's really gone up a lot. Um, but youth use, um, less so. But what we have seen with young adults nationally, not so much before the pandemic, was a really large increase again in the number of young adults who were using daily or near daily. And those are probably young adults who become dependent um, and frequently become dependent on high-potency pot like vaping products, uh, for example. Um, so that, that group that is not just using but using really frequently um, is a problem. So the pandemic seemed to have played out, may have played out a little bit differently for adults and for kids. Uh, you know, kids weren't out on the street as much. They weren't in their school. Um, they weren't hanging out with their friends as much. Um, so that may have had sort of the opposite effect for some of them. But they were very, very stressed. So we, we do have now, as, as kids are returning to school, uh, and I work a lot. Some of my other work is, for the past year and a half has been setting up COVID testing programs in schools. I mean, but what we hear from the schools is they're less worried about COVID testing than they are about mental health because kids are coming back with major mental health challenges. Um, and I'm guessing that as they come back, many of them are going to try and self-medicate those mental health concerns, you know, after two years of pandemic stress with cannabis. And that may not be a good thing. Wow, that is fast. So we don't have we don't have the twenty 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 two data yet, or uh, you know that'll be coming in soon. Fascinating, fascinating. You again, uh, as a medical professional, uh, the brain is still developing right on into late twenties. Is that correct, Doctor Silver? Yep, twenty six or so. Your brain is pretty plastic. It's still learning its job and you know, finishing its its organization and um, using substances before that age. I mean, the legal age is 21, but the brain age after which you should start, you know, you should try and postpone use is really like 26 uh, because that's when it's uh, less likely to have more lasting effects on brain architecture and function. That's the sort of thing I would encourage folks to really think about when we think about young people. I'm an old folk, yeah, I speak for myself, but I mean, people that are 25 and under. I guess she's an old folk, too, Dr. Silver. She told us her age already, but oh well. Um, I can I fess up, yes. Yeah, yes. But those out there who are young, spry, under 25, hey, you want to watch those risks for your brain computer i mean hey that is that is the investment like you do not want to take a whole lot of chances there what have you protect that at all costs that is something to kind of keep in mind through all of this uh let's see i think our parents who chimed in if you had a question for dr silver last four digits nine zero two nine nine zero two nine did you have a question for dr silver Uh, greetings, callers and listeners. Um, Gus, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reaching out in regards to a, a, a lot of these. It's just a, a ton of questions, but I'll start with the first one, which is the same way that the tobacco industry targeted mainly um, the non-white community, specifically black, 
Do you see any signs of the same thing transpiring within the black community uh, with, with quote unquote marijuana? Mm -hmm. I think we're just really starting to analyze that data. Where are the stores located? Um, where's the marketing going? Um, and how is that happening? I've definitely seen targeting of um, gay and um, plus LGBTQ community with like specific products like rainbow sherbet, pride, you know, this and things like that. Um, we've seen a proliferation of products um, that are marketed as blunts, which has traditionally been a product that's been used more heavily in the, uh, in the black community. Mm. So we've seen mm -hmm. a lot of marketing of blunts and flavored blunts and like grape flavored blunts and all of this. Um, some of them aren't actually blunts in the sense that it's not a tobacco wrapper with um, marijuana inside. It's it's some other wrapping paper with uh, with marijuana um, because you're not legally allowed to combine tobacco and marijuana products and legal cannabis products. Um, but we're definitely mm -hmm. but they're calling them blunts and selling them as blunts. Um, and we're seeing, I think, I think we're going to end up seeing more advertising going on in low-income communities and communities of color, um, in part because more affluent communities often have restrictions on advertising, and advertising, you know, can be concentrated in lower-income neighborhoods. You know, that's what we've seen with everything. But the data is just starting to come out there, and we're just analyzing now the data on where did dispensaries and other businesses set up um, in the case of California and are they targeting communities of color? Uh, so we're, we're just analyzing that. But we do know that, you know, how many dispensaries there are near your home makes a difference how likely you are to use. So we, we just published a paper on pregnant women and, you know, the more dispensaries there were within a 15-minute drive pregnant woman's house, the more likely she was to use. So where, where those stores locate really matters to what population use ends up looking like. Um, if they're all in the community color, that co that community and those kids are going to be more likely to be using. Got you. Got you. I, I understand. Now, the, the second one is in regards to you and, um, you and Gus were actually getting into it a bit more. But in regard to the brain brain effects have, I mean, have, have there been any regulations that are specific towards certain states? Because I'm, I'm here in the, the New York City and the Tri-State area, literally within the last two months, I've noticed when I travel on the New York City public trains that now there are advertisements stating, be mindful of smoke and its harmful effects with people that are around you that may not smoke. Or they'll say something to the extent of, um, if you're underage, you shouldn't be smoking. And these advertisements are literally brand new. I mean, I've been riding the train throughout the whole entire pandemic, everything. And these advertisements just started maybe within a month and a half. Um, so are there regulations, in, in, and they're different within different states that we're seeing right now? Or is there something universal across the board? No, because cannabis sale is cannabis is still considered uh, Schedule One or uh, highly controlled under federal law, and uh, so all of the legal framework 
around cannabis um, is controlled by the states that have legalized, and their laws are in conflict with federal law, but the federal government has decided to hold back on enforcing, so it's allowing these state-regulated markets to emerge. So basically all the rules that are uh, currently in effect are state, or almost all of them are state rules, um, and they do vary widely from state to state. New York State just uh, just went legal. The stores are just starting to function there now, so that's probably why you were seeing all of those signs. I w- I'm from New York originally. I, I was back there a couple of months ago the week that um, legal sale was starting, and uh, or that the decriminalization went into effect, rather. Uh, I couldn't believe it. There were so many people smoking weed on the city streets. Washington Square Park was full of people selling weed <laughs> and uh, people smoking weed. It was uh, a very visible uh, change. But um, so New York State is just putting its regulations into effect. In fact, some of them are open for comment now. Um, what warnings will be used? How will it be packaged? And so forth. New York's doing some good things, like the tax on uh, higher potency products. Um, they're proposing some better warning language um, and some other measures that are good. Um, so they're doing better than California on a number of things, um, but they don't have hard limits on turbocharging, for example, or high-potency products. Um, right. So if you're a New Yorker, you know, roll up your sleeves and get active. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I will uh, say this. Um, it's what we do in our communities that'll decide it. I'm sorry, sir. No, no, no. I'm, thank you. Thank you for that. That great answers. Um, but I will say this is that it's noticeable the uptick. I'm just making this statement because I'm agreeing with you in regards to the areas. And it's not just areas like Washington Square Park, which are predominantly NYU, which is a college campus where many, you know, children from all over the world come and they just do whatever, um, mainly wealthy. Um, it's in areas like 42nd Street, uh, Grand Central, uh, popular areas that tourists come everywhere, uh, financial district, downtown by Wall Street, where it's very noticeable that there's an uptick in usage. And um, I'll just say this, as a parent, it's it's been a, something that I monitor with both my sons um, especially my teenage son. And um, it's, it's very interesting to hear the dynamics and as far as the law is concerned. So going forward, I'll, I guess I'm just going to have to keep paying attention as things just started getting um, underway here in New York. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you, um, Gus, for the platform again. Yeah, it's really good that you're talking to your sons. You know, I would say, parents, talk to your kids. You know, you don't need to make it out like the demon rum, but you do need to be really clear that using it, especially using it young, has problems, that they're better off waiting as long as possible. And if they do use, they should use very small doses, you know, start with half an edible or, uh, you know, and stay away from the concentrates and the vapes and these more and these uh, much more potent uh, products, uh, which their friends may be handing them. It's it's actually very scary, the data that teens will tell you on the number of kids that are going to school high, that are getting high at school because vaping is so invisible and you can do it without smelling like pot. Um, and teachers are seeing this. Principals are confiscating, you know, vape cartridges and all these devices. Um, 
the sale of the legal hemp products with THC is making it all worse right now. Um, so you really do need to, to talk to your kids um, and communicate with them. Thank Great. you. Great tips for parents. I love it with su- such specifics, like just do a small bit of the edibles, stay away from the supercharged concentrates and the shatter and all that. I always think about uh, the names that they give certain products. Like, why do they call it shatter? You don't think they call it that because it'll <laughs> Cause it shatter? Like <laughs> well, I was thinking that too. I was also thinking it could be because it'll. Your brain's, your brain's going to look like that after. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. That's that's what I was thinking. Like all these crazy names. Like I think I'm going to pass on all of that. Like, whew. Uh, let's see. Uh, the person caller at two two six two, two two six two. Did you have a question for Doctor Lynn Silver? Uh, at the moment, guess I'm currently still um, at work. But if I have some time, I definitely will uh, have a question. But thank you. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, we'll. Swing back if you have a moment in the workplace. Uh, let's see. The caller in New Jersey. Oh, everybody in the tri-state area. Caller in New Jersey, did you have a question? Or were you just listening? He was with us first time around. Did you have a question, sir? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, hey, how you doing uh, to the guests? Um, so where, where did this, um, if you want to call it a trope or um, this information that marijuana helps, with anxiety because I do have a friend that is a um, daily um, marijuana um, uh, uh, user, and she says that it helps with her anxiety. So where, where, where did that come from? Why do, why do people believe that? Why do people believe it? You know, it, it may be that some people are helped by it, um, but clearly, it's pretty clear that others become more anxious, um, especially with high doses of THC. Um, so I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't say nobody is helped by it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know your friend's specific case. Marijuana is a really interesting plant. It has um, receptors throughout the brain and throughout the body, and and a lot of different. Um, physiological effects on people, and we're really just starting to understand, not, not just starting to understand, but we're, we're still learning a lot about the harms and the benefits. Um, there are a lot of medical uses that are being uh, claimed by products, but very few are proven. Uh, the proven ones really are um, control of certain forms of epilepsy, reducing nausea with chemotherapy. Um, help with certain forms of pain or spasticity for some people. Uh, the evidence on anxiety or um, mental mental health is is not good so far, um, and hasn't really supported it. But you know, there's more research to come, and it may be for certain people or certain situations that there's benefit. Um, people, many people take it for insomnia but the data on effects on sleep are actually not that good and tend to demonstrate that it doesn't improve sleep quality. Uh, but we're, we're still learning. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see 
more medical uses emerging and, and positive evidence. Um, but, you know, honestly, it's like any other medicine. I expect the FDA to really study stuff before people can sell it to us and tell us that it works for something. I'm really glad we have the FDA requiring all those studies before people can sell us medicines. Um, and I frankly believe in the same standard for cannabis. You know, if the industry wants to say it works for anxiety or it works for uh, anything, you know, for depression or something else, uh, they should have to prove it. Um, and, uh, you know, like at least one company did that for seizure disorders. They studied um, CBD. They did all the trials. They found that it worked for a very specific uh, group of severe seizures. Um, and it's on the market now as a licensed drug. Um, and that's good. They went, you know, they did the work, they did the research, and they got the results. Um, but there's probably a lot of other claimed uses that are not true. And, you know, sort of sorting the wheat from the chaff is what's happening now. You know, so your friend may be right, she may be wrong, I don't know. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are using cannabis, um, trying to self-medicate uh, mental health issues. And in some cases, they're doing themselves harm. In some cases, it may be helpful, but we're, I think we still need to figure that out. Okay. I would certainly um, say it's, it's not anxiety. that benign, completely oh, so. safe stuff. <laughs> they can't gotcha. assume that it's so safe. You said, so, uh, doctor, so, and you said something about anxious. So, anxiety is the feeling of um, being anxious, anxious, and also, um, is, it any, is there any evidence that marijuana increases that feeling? Yeah, especially people who take uh, a high THC product often have anxiety reactions or paranoia, um, and in some cases an extreme that's just acute psychosis, hearing things that aren't real, you know, seeing things that aren't real. Um, but anxiety and paranoia uh, with cannabis consumption are very common reactions, Especially okay. like a young person um, who hasn't thought, used a lot and goes goes straight to you know vaping something high potency, um, it's it's common. We have a lot of people ending up in the ER with anxiety, paranoia, other types of acute episodes like that from cannabis. Okay, one more question. How about um, mood swings and and depression? Um, it was is that some um, 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 magnified like. Uh, um, results of uh, chronic marijuana use. Does depression make chronic marijuana use worse? Is that what your question is, or vice versa? Yes. Does marijuana make? Yeah. Does marijuana make it worse, or um, even uh, mood swings and um, intensifying depression? Um, the, the data on depression has been mixed, so there have been some studies that suggested it was likely to cause or exacerbate depression, and then there were other studies that said it didn't. So that was one of the areas where I don't think there's really a consensus yet on how it affects depression specifically, which is why we did not include it in the California Warnings Law. Um, some people were arguing for it, but the evidence on that is, is not as clear. Like when the National Academies of Science reviewed evidence on how marijuana marijuana's benefits and harms, they felt that it wasn't as clear for depression. Nevertheless, as I mentioned, uh, the 
giant study that NIH did on suicide found that cannabis use, and especially frequent cannabis use, was more likely to be associated with someone thinking about suicide or trying to commit suicide, even when they controlled for whether those people had um, serious depression, depressive illness. So a person, you know, with serious depression, even more so, but even those people who didn't have serious depression were more likely to think about or try to commit suicide um, if they were using cannabis, especially if they, the more frequently they were using it. Um, so that's not the same thing as making people more depressed, but it's the same thing as making, you know, as potentially making people more likely to act on whatever their sad feelings were and, um, and their lives are thinking about ending their lives. Um, so that's another big area of concern. Thank you so much, Dr. There's a lot of chicken and egg discussion. Is, is the person using marijuana because they were depressed or are they depressed because they're using marijuana? Um, that's like a complicated methods discussion, but um, the evidence so far suggests that marijuana um, may not help and may make things worse, particularly suicide risk. Hmm. Uh, we have a mommy in the Bay Area, California's uh, Bay Area. Incidentally, I, I was talking about um, uh, black entrepreneurs being white-walled from participating in the cannabis industry. Uh, I think I spoke with uh, our caller here about that. I think she even knows uh, some black entrepreneurs who've had problems with that racism, white supremacy in terms of trying to root out, keep out, exclude black entrepreneurs from all the millions and millions of THC dollars. Uh, Bay Area Mom, did you have a question for Dr. Silver? Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. Greetings to you and Dr. Silver. Um, the cannabis economy in California. Um, when they legalized uh, the cannabis, uh, cannabis in California, they started giving out uh, opportunities for people who went to jail to open a dispensary. Um, a lot of the people that were able to come up with the money, some of the money came from people that uh, people that had money that already knew about the program, that knew that uh, some of the people that had gotten out of jail for selling cannabis prior to the legalization would be able to get a storefront. A great deal of the people lost their storefront. Um, you think the legalization of cannabis in California and using that program um, for people who wouldn't be able to get a cannabis license, let's see, okay, uh, people that weren't able to get a cannabis license that had money went through the people that got the opportunity to get the license and they lost their business. Do you think it was designed to do that just to get a free foot into the business utilizing these people? And I'll meet my line. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discourse about, you know, the, the equity 
questions you asked about cannabis. First is ending mass incarceration and putting people in jail. The second question that's come up around equity is, is the profit from this industry going to go back to the people who, you know, were arrested for it for decades? Um, and how should that be dealt with? Um, in the state of California specifically, um, not enough was done. So the state licensing rules did, until very recently, did absolutely nothing to favor what have been called social equity applicants, people who um, were victims of the war on drugs or whose parents were victims of the war on drugs or whose communities were victims of the war on drugs. Um, of California's 539 cities and counties, for example, only about, uh, I think it was 22 last time we did the count, had any kind of equity in licensing um, stipulations. That's a very low percentage of cities and counties. Oakland was actually one of the first that offered a special license. Um, so as I think I mentioned earlier, my preference would be a Quebec-styling license where um, nobody is trying to have a profit-making venture off cannabis, um, but perhaps, for example, we could favor all the job opportunities um, being for um, equity in hiring, but if you're talking about issuing for-profit licenses in the community, you can make it so the first couple of years, 100% of those licenses have to be equity licenses, or 50%, but that's not what's happening. So these investors with lots of money are coming in, they're sweeping up the best spots, they have the money to um, invest to fulfill all the expensive regulatory requirements and build the store. Um, and even when an equity applicant gets a license, sometimes they're failing or very frequently they're getting bought out early um, by people with more money who then take over the business. Um, so there's been a lot of that going on. Basically, I think the way our policies are set up, they are absolutely not guaranteeing that any significant part of this emerging industry's profits are going to to those who were uh, the greatest victims of the war on drugs. That's not happening. We have examples. We have great, you know, entrepreneurs of color, some success stories, um, some jurisdictions that have tried to create better policies. But overall, if you look at the full picture across the state, it's a very limited, and I know California best, it's a very limited percentage. Um, New York State, I think, is making an effort to have the first round of licenses have a significant uh, part going to equity applicants, but it's it, and several other states are trying harder than California did, um, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of thought um, and really making it a priority if, if you want it to be real and not just some symbolic measure um, for them to be successful. Um, on the other hand, you know, if I'm going to put public money towards subsidizing a business, I'd rather put it to a daycare center or a healthy food store or something else. I, I wouldn't put it towards a liquor store, and I might not put it towards a cannabis store. But I would provide high priority in licensing to those applicants and really try and do everything possible to make them successful. And that, that's not happening enough. Woo! Making too much sense. About to do applause. We can't even get a <laughs> grocery store in Buffalo. Like, they got recreational cannabis in New York State. Like, I was going to say, now, how long does it take them to get a dispensary in the east side of Buffalo? We can't have a grocery Yeah, really. I mean, like, it, 
in Buffalo, let's first pay for that grocery store where they had the shootings in 10 of them, you know, before you pay for the liquor store or the cannabis store. Absolutely. There's probably the enough Lactation center, I would vote for that too. Uh, any sort of <laughs> farmer's market, any of that, all of the above. Let's do that. Then we'll get to the cannabis store like later. But I totally support the equity <clears throat> applicants. Did she get your answer your question, Bay Area Mom, about the folks uh, using that to kind of finagle and get in uh, and then booting out the, the person who originally was on the equity application? Did she get your question, Bay Area Mom? Yeah, that was pretty good. I can put together the rest. And thank you so much. For sure. For thank sure. you for the question. Uh, let's see. For, uh, retired firefighter. I think we did. Unless we got everybody. Any other parents, make sure you don't wait till the last moment. Star 6-1 if we have other parents. Retired firefighter, do you have a question? Were you just listening? He was with us first time around. Uh, yes, I, I have a question for the doctor. Uh, uh, could she uh, give us some uh, healthy alternatives uh, for those young people especially who uh, say that they use uh, marijuana uh, for their mental health issues uh, and could you give us some uh, healthy alternatives uh, uh, opposite of uh, using uh, marijuana and please and please not let it Richland be one of the things on the list and that's, not, that's not like what? Ritalin. Oh, Ritalin, no. I mean, I think <laughs> it's about fewer drugs of any kind. Um, you know, people have real stresses. You have many mental health issues. Um, I think the first thing is just making sure that our youth have access to other healthy activities, to, to nature, to outdoor activities, to camps, to youth programs, that they have access to social opportunities um, to meet and to work in healthy and healthy and safe environments, um, that they have opportunities to contribute to their community in ways that engage them and develop their minds and keep them from getting depressed and you know sitting on a computer playing video games all day long. Um, you know, I think the ways of engaging our youth um, in the community and with each other um, that don't depend on alcohol and drugs, uh, whether legal pharmaceuticals or illegal ones, um, are the most single important thing that we have educational systems that are working um, are the first option. You know, I, I don't like seeing increasing rates of prescription drugs for our kids. I don't like you know, I, I'm not one to say alcohol safer than cannabis or cannabis safer than alcohol. Neither of them are good for young people. Um, there is a need for teen mental health support. We do have a lot of teens with mental health needs and substance abuse needs. So making sure that our health care, that, that kids have access to insurance and that our health care system provides those services that they need. Uh, hopefully without medication, but even with medication when they need it um, is also very important. Um, but I think a lot of teen depression and mental health problems comes from 
isolation comes from lack of access to nature, from um, lack of healthy opportunities for other forms of engagement, um, and that we need to to try and create those supports for them and have a, have our whole community be supportive for our young people. Um, and that's you know that for me are the, are the best protections from cannabis. Okay, not that that way. opens. I mean. That- I mean, there are some kids who need Ritalin, but it, it shouldn't be that many. And you know, I don't think okay. Ritalin our Ritalin our way out of child mental health issues. Right, right. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see. Make sure I got all of the folks we normally ask folks at the beginning i switched it around just because this was kind of different content from what we would normally uh be talking about plus we just had our first program conclude right as this one began so i was kind of getting my bearings together uh for folks who've not seen you uh dr silver you are a white woman is that correct i am right on uh we normally ask all of our guests at the very beginning and it's so interesting because it's come up so many times in the program already most interesting most interestingly dr silver she said way back when she started out she was going through med school and everything she said they were talking about the disparities between uh black birth rates and white birth rates and she said those disparities it's been she's i think she said it's been 40 years she said those disparities are still here is my memory bad did you say was it yeah that uh, was the disparities in disparities in low weight low birth weight babies who were being born too small or too early there we go low birth that's still there still made no progress i've concluded the reason it it has made some progress but it's it's still inequitable it's still unfair here we go in that word again. I've concluded the reason that that <laughs> is, is the system of white supremacy racism. I take those two terms, racism and the term white supremacy. I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, um, I think institutional systemic racism totally exists. I think there's a lot of societal structures that people don't even realize contribute to it and yet sustain it. So I don't know if it's always a group of people doing it as, you know, consciously as you just described, but that there is a whole set of societal structures and um, characteristics that keep people who of color down um, is absolutely real. You asked me what I do at PHI, and the other 
job I have is we've been working really hard to create something called the California Health Equity and Racial Justice Fund and get the state to um, work on making like sustained investments with community-based organizations to fight institutional racism and, and uh, health equity. Um, the legislature supported it the last two years and the governor blocked it both years. So we didn't get it again this year. But um, the whole idea was for to, to try and build strength in communities to take down these structures that um, manifest and, and create barriers of institutional racism. Um, so I, I think I'm pretty close to your definition. I I don't know if I'd go exactly the same words, but you know that, that's it's definitely there. So many things I could say. I have to go back to the definition. Normally, the program would start here because definition's so critically important, especially the definition for racism. Uh-huh. I just want to make sure: Did Governor Gavin Newsom block this effort? Uh, unfortunately, yeah, he did a lot of other good investments this year in, in social programs and other needs. Um, but yeah, the last two years, the administration uh, did not. Um, support this uh, health equity and racial justice fund that um, I don't know over 200 different organizations across the state we've been working on promoting. Um, so hopefully next year, but it's definitely an area where we need to invest as a society and make some serious change so that pediatricians training this year won't be saying 40 years later oh, black women are still having smaller babies. Mm. Like I said. That uh Wow. Okay. Good to know that. Back to the definition. Uh, for this, definitions are critically important. Institutional racism is not the definition uh, that I gave, and this is when I say it's so important because so many times people yeah. use the term racism and they assume that we're all using the same definition. And I found that's not the case at all. Uh, so I tell folks like they. Can you re- not, restate yes, what, ma'am. what you said? Yes, ma'am. So my definition: a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think that definition is accurate? Does such a system exist? And you're calling that the definition of institutional racism or of what? I didn't use the term institutional at all. I said that's my definition or, for racism. That is also my definition for, racism. for white supremacy. Uh-huh. Yeah, for me, that sounds like white supremacy, like those people who consciously dedicate themselves to perpetrating that. Um, but I think that they're above and beyond those who are consciously dedicated to subjugating people of other colors, that there um, is a whole broader range of people um, who aren't consciously white supremacists, um, but who end up being complicit in policies and practices that have the same effect. That that would be my only concern with the definition that um, there is, you know, clear white supremacists who know what they're doing and they're trying to do it, 
and then there's um, just a, a whole second layer. Does that make sense? Mm, there's some metaphors there. Uh, the lot and, and the laughter. Now that's wow. Lots of laughter. There would be lots, lots that I would be suspicious about. That just wow. Even within the context uh, the of laughter, our conversation. That's just my. That's my. That's my nervous laugh that my children tease me about all the time. Oh, okay. Even even <laughs> right, if it was I just, just did nerves. It again. Yes, even the nerves. That would yeah, be yeah. it. The logic is very strained, uh, even within the context of this conversation. For for that, or I guess let me ask this. Let me ask this question. I see we had a parent. Let me get your question because they might have important uh, questions that they need information for their children. But uh, Dr. Silver, who do you think? is more informed about racism, white supremacy, meaning what it is, how it works, the daily operations and what have you, how, you know, black people are not going to be able to get these licenses or what have you, or even if they do have some of these equitable set-asides, they might even be duped out of those as well. Who do you think is more informed about what racism, white supremacy is and how it works? Do you think white people are more informed about that, or do you think non-white people are more informed? Oh, no, I think the people who are being victimized by it, you know, are definitely the most informed. I mean, in part, that's why that fund that we were trying to, you know, create was specifically about putting resources in the hands of organizations of communities of color to act on racism and to, you know, respond to what they perceive to be the issues in their community. So, yeah, I mean, unquestionably, I think it's people are being affected by it. Huh, okay. Uh, but you are a white woman. You've not been affected by white supremacy racism, but you are informed about it, correct? I've not been directly affected by it, but I, um, I'm affected by living in a society that's affected by it, you know. I think my children grow up in a society and witness injustice and inequities and, um, you know, all of the societal issues that that entails um, throughout their lives, and all of us do. So I think, um, although I've not personally been the um, affected by racism as a victim of racism, I think I think we all live... Um, seeing its consequences in our communities. Right, but uh, within the context of what you just said in terms of being impacted, that non-white people are more informed about racism because they're impacted by it, uh, in that context, you didn't, mean, you didn't mean that broad general sense of impacted. You meant impacted as in targeted, unless I misunderstood you. So in that sense, you have not been impacted, meaning one of the direct intended targets That's of correct. racism, white supremacy, but yet you are still informed about that system. Isn't that true, Dr. Silver? I mean, I try to be informed about it. I try and fight it and, you know, other forms of social injustice. That's what I've spent my life doing. Um, but, you know, I'm a white person by birth, so that's um, just a fact. But I try and, you know, make my work contribute to eliminating different kinds of injustice, including, race, you know, of which racism is one of the top ones.
Right. This is also one that's important, interesting, just because you went through med school and everything. I bragged about it. Said, we have a medical doctor coming on the program. You said going through med school that you all talked about disparities in birth weight. Right. That's you are informed. This is something, a topic that you've been talking about for decades and even the cannabis legalization. So I'm just saying it is a true statement. You are Dr. Silver, a white woman. You have not been impacted by white supremacy, racism as a target of that system. But yet you are still informed. Is that a true statement? Yes, no. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think most people who work in public health like I do. Um, you know, a lot of our work is around equity and inequity and um, how disease and illness are affected by racism and by social injustice. So, you know, I think in particular uh, folks in the health professions who are working in public health uh, study this, care deeply about it, are working to change it, no matter, you know, what color they are. Right on. I see you, Kwaku. I'm not forgetting you. Our caller, maybe even a parent on Skype right there. She said she was from the New York area. My my attention perked up. Dr. Silver did. Uh, and particularly being someone who's she's not a teenager. We'll say it that way. Uh, Dr. Silver is the name Joseph G. Christopher. Is that familiar to you? Joseph G. Christopher. Um. Uh... Not right this second, but I have a terrible memory for names. So okay. <laughs> if okay. you remind me, I might, I might perk up. Let's see. Uh, for New York City, uh, how about Midtown Slasher? Oh, Midtown Slasher. Uh, I don't remember that particular case, but gosh, there's been all kinds of crime problems in for the city, sure. so I, I don't remember that one. Okay. This is 19... 19- uh, 80 going right into 1981 uh, Joseph G. Christopher uh, Midtown Slasher and the 22 caliber killer uh, he is a white man uh, who he started in Buffalo uh, he killed I forgot how lots of black males he was exclusively targeting black males uh, he shot and killed a number of them in Buffalo starting at a Topps grocery store in Buffalo importantly uh, and then he went to New York City and he killed uh, at least four black males, uh, many of them on the subway uh, in midtown Manhattan. Uh, right. I believe it's the 24th. It was right before Christmas uh, in December of 1980. Uh, but he was not apprehended until April of 1981. Uh, but Joseph G. Christopher, uh, he killed and then he killed more people even after all that. And it ended up I think he killed about. 16, 17 black males uh, in total stabbed. He killed two black males in Buffalo and carved their hearts out uh, in addition to killing them. Oh, my uh, God. Just really savage. It's been amazing. The people that we were you in New York in the 1980s or had you departed by then? That year I was working in Nicaragua in wow. a rural area with no Internet, no phones and no email. <laughs> so that's probably why I never heard of wow. I was uh, very far away from the news that year. Uh, amazing Nicaragua that's amazing you're with everybody else because we have lots of folks uh, who were right here in New York when all of this happened and they have no idea so hey at least you got to be doing something interesting Uh, let's see our call I went to grab them and they I don't know if they got uh, knocked off let's see I'll look and see if they got uh, oh there they are 
Our caller, uh, did you have a question for Dr. Silver? Uh, you should be with us. You're on the Skype line. Uh, Your volume, see it did it again. I was prepared this time. Your volume is still not cooperating. So if you can make the adjustment, what have you, speak up, get closer, all of that, and then try again, sir. Uh, is that better? Much better. Thank you. Uh, greetings. Uh, so my first question, uh, I wanted to know what exactly can somebody who has uh, consumed marijuana in the past, what what should they expect to to happen to them? I mean, if you use marijuana occasionally in the past and you're fine, nothing. Um, you know, if you use marijuana every day heavily for years, you may have, especially when you were young, you may have some neurologic changes or you may not. Um, you may be fine. I don't think you'll ever know if you're any different than you would have been. Um, you know, when we do these big studies of people, uh, like studies, for example, a study that was done in New Zealand that looked at thousands of 17-year-olds and followed them until they turned 30, the kids who were using cannabis daily when they were 17 were, you know, less than half as likely to graduate high school or college. Um, they didn't have more depression. They didn't have some other issues, but um, academic performance, for example, went um, way down. So, you know, that may have affected your life or it may not have. I don't know your story. Um, and people's story is different. You know, there are other kids who did fine and went on to college and did great uh, despite using. But the risk of not having a good outcome went way out uh, academically. So... You know, it may or may not have affected you. I wouldn't, you know, it's it's not like smoking. It's different than smoking tobacco where your risk of lung cancer many years later may affect you, um, even though risk goes down once you stop smoking tobacco. Um, but if you were using heavily and have stopped um, and you're doing okay, you're probably doing okay. I see. Uh, thank you. Uh, my My next question is how... Uh, in your, in I guess your experience and what you've observed, are people classified as white largely the people who own, control, um, distribute marijuana? Are people in, in classified as? Uh, I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? Are people sorry. classified how? People classified as white. Are they are they largely the the group that owns, controls, distributes uh, marijuana as as an industry? You know, I haven't seen a good racial analysis of ownership um, as the industry has evolved. Um, my impression is that probably yes, um, that the vast majority of businesses that are being launched are probably controlled um, by whites or, or wealthy investors. You know, some of them are Asian, some are um, from other racial or ethnic groups, and some are from the black community. Um, but I'm, my impression is that probably most are white and that we're seeing um, big companies aren't as bought in and 
in the United States yet because it's still federally illegal. Companies like uh, Altria and uh, Coca-Cola are starting to buy in in Canada where it's legal across the country. Um, but I'm guessing that we'll also see this increasing role of, of large corporate actors um, as it went, when and if the federal legalization situation changes in the U.S. But the um, presence of owners of color um, in the cannabis industry is still modest. I see. Uh, my my last question is, uh, thank you very much. What? How should uh, non-white people, do you have a suggestion for how non-white people should, I guess, uh, become more informed or um, become more informed about marijuana? Because uh, uh, I, I suspect that we are, it, we are being affected indirectly. I know there a lot of the discussion and a lot of the things directly have been identified, but what, do you have a suggestion for what non-white people can do? Well, I think um, one thing that's important is figuring out where the tax money goes. Um, so, like, we did an analysis of where the tax money for local government was going in California, and it looked like most of it was going to law enforcement agencies, <laughs> um, which is not where we wanted it to go. We want that money to go back to communities and to youth and to educating um, communities, particularly communities of color, um, about substance abuse, but also, you know, a, potentially other programs that help youth just develop well and, uh, and fully um, and not need to rely on substances. Um, so trying to capture any cannabis tax revenue that's coming in and you're both at the state level and at the local level where you live and making sure that those funds can be used to um, educate um to educate, to regulate better, to engage communities of color in changing the rules of the game for their community. Um, like in tobacco control, there's been wonderful uh, activism from black community, Latino community, um, in educating their community and developing kind of culturally and linguistically appropriate education, but also in um, engaging in policy in their community and deciding where a store can locate and, you know, what the rules of the game will be. So I think uh, using uh, tax revenue in particular to fund uh, community organizations of color to work on these issues, to um, carry out education campaigns that are appropriate for communities of color um, are all um, positive steps that you can take. Um, there's been... There's some really good examples from tobacco control that I think could be applied here. Like California funds, you know, networks of community organizations and communities of color to work on tobacco control with their communities and to educate. Um, and that's been really positive. Thank you. Confused. I didn't know if he got his last question in. Uh, our caller, he asked us to circle back. I guess he was in a, a noisy environment. Two two six two. Is it quiet uh, for you to get your question in, or did you? Were you still just listening, sir? Hello. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Um, yes. Um, 
I was, I wanted to ask you guess, because I'm one or was one of those equity candidates uh, looking to open up uh, expenses, but um, sorry, I should get you a, a better environment. Thank you. Um, yes, I was one of those candidates who was looking to, uh, who was a part of a group who was petitioning to get uh, cannabis licenses. And from my experience, from what the contract said, we will only own 30% of the business while the rest of the um, uh, cannabis business will be owned by the fellow investors who help pay for all of the um, uh, building and the locations and the uh, flower for this product. Um, I wanted to ask, is that a common contract? And you said earlier about uh, uh, eventually those investors would buy out the, uh, the, the person they use who was affected by the war on drugs. Um, I had some trouble hearing you. I heard a question that in some cases the uh, equity licensee may only hold 30% of the business and then get bought out. Is that what you were asking? Or, could you, or Gus, did, can you summarize? Yes, that, that, was, that was my question because that was one of those candidates and my contract specifically said only 30%. Oh, okay. He said his contract. He was one of those candidates and he said his contract specifically said uh, that he would only own 30% of the business uh, and is this standard operating procedure to use this candidate to get the business and then to buy that person out uh, and move them out so they're not even a part of the profit anymore? I, I think that is definitely happening. So some jurisdictions define an equity applicant requiring that they be a majority owner, which I think is much wiser. Um, you know, I think that uh, otherwise you can't keep yourself from being forced out. Um, some other jurisdictions establish um, that you can't transfer Ownership, if you're an equity applicant, that had some pros and cons. On the one hand, it made it less likely for the owner to be forced out. But on the other hand, it made it harder for them to be able to sell their business and make a profit on the sale. Um, so it's it varies because in California, that's something that's been regulated by the city or the county, and there's 539 of them. And as I mentioned, I think it's only 20-some uh, that have any provisions for um, supporting social equity applicants, it's it's different from town to town. I believe some of them required at least a 50% interest, though. Um, so, you know, equity applicants um, might need to unite and try and change those. I mean, I, I think I think we need much more stringent um, priority for equity applicants. Um, I mean, it's if only, you know, if if in the first year or two only equity applicants were eligible or, you know, 50% of the licenses had to go to them, then they'd be in a much stronger bargaining position, too, with sources of capital. You know, right now they're in, there's, it's a pretty weak bargaining position in most places. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a system that's been designed to effectively support um, equity applicants, in my opinion. Thank you for your response. And that'll be my, all my questions for tonight. Thank you, guys. Much obliged, good sir. Um, 
probably standard operating. We've heard that in a number of different applications too, where they'll in like construction uh, companies and other uh, entrepreneurial activities where they will have something where it'll be uh, not, I don't want to say set aside. Uh, it'll be some sort of program, counter racist aim. Hey, we're encouraging black entrepreneurs or non white entrepreneurs. Uh, and so they get these people in, uh, and then somehow, some way, they will be bamboozled. Uh, and now they're no longer uh, owning, they're no longer earning anything from the property, and it'll be individuals classified as white who have taken over the whole enterprise. Uh, it's amazing how that that's why i say that sort of thing is not happenstance or coincidence system of white supremacy racism did i hear it correctly dr silver when i think it was the previous caller uh and you were talking about uh, some of the same activism that black people and other non-white people have exerted uh around tobacco uh could be exerted around can uh cannabis uh and you said in terms of regulating uh, activities of tobacco companies and, you know, where they can have stores and that sort of thing in areas where black people reside. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. We've wow. been working with a number of community organizations of color um, around these issues uh, across the state. Where are some Great of the folks. Where are some of the areas, I guess, in California specifically where black people have been success? This must be recent success where black people have been constructive in keeping or controlling exerting control over what black or exerting control over what tobacco companies are doing in areas where black people reside i mean like the african-american tobacco control leadership council for example has worked nationally to try and end menthol in tobacco which has been you know marketed directly in black communities um that may be happening. It still hasn't happened, um, but a number of communities across the country, quite a large number of states and local government have uh, taken action to end tobacco products that have been marketed specifically in the black community. Um, they've worked to end concentration of tobacco retailers in black communities. Um, I think a lot of the mobilization we've seen early in the black community around cannabis has been more about equity and licensing. So there were a number of organizations of color and still are um, trying to fight for equity and licensing and then having uh, a part in the economic pie of the cannabis industry. Um, and only more recently are more organizations also getting involved in the health, uh, public health and um, health protection concerns as well. Um, some of them work on both sets of issues. We've worked on both equity and licensing and equity and protecting health. Um, and a number of our partner organizations, uh, I don't know, Pueblo y Salud in L.A. and um, others, you know, are, are concerned about all these sides of the equity issues. Um, but um, there's uh, a lot of uh, black activism has gone into the issues of equity and licensing, but still with um, modest impact on, only modest impact on what the state's been doing. Mm, for sure. With just I was I was taken aback with regards to tobacco, because that's a subject that we covered before we got interested in the whole cannabis legalization and then continued uh, to cover in the interim after cannabis was legalized here in Washington state and then beyond. Uh, we had Dr. Valerie B. Yerger. 
uh, as a guest on the program. She's oh, right. Yeah. See, familiar with her work, white people are not ignorant about racism. Uh, she was a guest on our program, and then we also had Bernelia Randall. Uh, she was a guest with us way back 2009. Uh, we talked about her book, uh, Dying While Black, which has a whole chapter just on cigarettes uh, and what have you, and the dangers of tobacco and nicotine and so much of the information that they shared was about the lack of control that black people have with regards to nicotine and tobacco products and that's why exactly what dr silver said earlier about hey the danger the fear with these cannabis uh advertisements and what have you is that they're not going to be in more affluent areas where individuals classified as white reside they will be in lower income areas because they have less restrictions about these advertisements so it'll be more black people who are going to be you know saturated with all this oh yeah go and get the you know thc fruity pebbles and all the rest i think that was part of the watering down too they took the warnings off of the billboards my memory might be bad there but i think that might have been part of the you know so you they, got it you yep, got see, it thing take that one that's too exactly what they did take that one too but i mean that's exactly what I mean. Like black people, there is no evidence, at least none that I've seen, none that Dr. Yerger shared with us about black people exerting control. It's been exactly what I said earlier. White people and the system of white supremacy, it'll be tobacco ads. Maybe it'll be uh, THC ads or both or whatever it is, but it'll be where you all live. And she already told us before, more greater prevalence of those ads greater likelihood that you're going to consume those products. That's why I thought all of just so see- Valerie, did you know Valerie's partner in crime, Dr. Phil Gardner? Oh no, I don't know Dr. Gardner. Who's Dr. Gardner? Who's he? So, uh, they, they worked together with the African American Tobacco Control Leadership Group and he was an early contributor to our project, but Phil, who was on California's Tobacco Control Oversight Group was one of the first people in the state um, to say, no, we have to look at tobacco and cannabis together. We wow. have to write our policy, taking both of them into account. Um, and, you know, all of these games the tobacco industry played, they're going to play the same games, you know, with cannabis and in communities of color. Uh, so he's been um, just a, a wonderful voice helping to uh, raise awareness and um, and, you know, sound the alarm and, and also identify the need for um, action and communities of color on, on these issues and on what he, what they call the triangle or the interface of tobacco and cannabis. Wow. They're I, very similar. I'm, I'm afraid Valerie's going to have to write a new chapter for that book of hers, Dr. Dr. Valerie. Absolutely. We asked her. This was in the end. I think she was with us. It was... Because they just got the ban that even with uh, menthol cigarettes, they just got them banned. Bernelia Randall was with us 13 plus years ago talking about, man, black people are so she didn't say lame, but I mean, that's what you call it. That's the definition. You've been working for all these years talking about the problem with menthols and they're so addictive. And man, you've got and they're concentrated with black people. Get all these black people smoking menthol cigarettes and they're so damaging. It took until I think months ago. I think that happened this year. I think that was literally 2022. They finally. I think it's 
final yet. They're still working on it. <laughs> see, see, it's it's not even in the finals, but at least rolling towards. Hey, it looks like it could happen in 2022. Like, but yeah, I remember we asked Dr. Yerger about cannabis. Uh, at that time, like, what are your thoughts? Do you have any concerns? And she said, I haven't even, I haven't even checked out that. I have to do more. Look, I focus so much time and, you know, energy on tobacco. And she had so much great information. But she said, yeah, I'm not even a, not an expert on that. Don't claim to be. We'll have to do more digging. But, wow, <laughs> not that I'm. Yeah, April 28th, the FDA finally proposed the ban on menthol cigarettes. But it's open for public comment. It may take a <laughs> while yet before the ban actually happens. I'm I'm not surprised. But they better work fast. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Did we nab all of the parents' questions uh, for Dr. Silver? Make sure we didn't miss anyone who had a question for Dr. Silver. Uh, Parents, folks, question they want to make sure they get in. Everybody satisfied they got in their questions for the evening? Yes, may I ask something? Our Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. So, um, in California, Oakland, California, the middle school and elementary school children are smoking marijuana now. Um, their their clothes are smelling like it. That they're very um, aggressive. Uh, they're uh, using the vape pens. Um, and they're not getting into any trouble. They're not really, uh, there's no disciplinary action for, uh, their cannabis use at school. Um, I'm not saying if they're reported, they may not get their parents called. I'm just saying that they're just doing it as if they're in the park. Do you think that Marijuana, since it's been legal in California, has been marketed towards uh, black children. And I'll I'll mute my line. Thank you. You know, um, it's a huge problem. You're seeing a lot of kids of all ages using in school, go to school, getting high at school. It is interfering with their education. The principals know about it. Um, They're confiscating devices. I think we have a real challenge because, on the one hand, you don't want to expel or suspend a lot of kids, particularly kids of color, um, for use and just make educational outcomes worse. On the other hand, you can't just let it ride. So there's all kinds of, you know, efforts in the school system around restorative justice and other things to have approaches to dealing with disciplinary interaction that doesn't lead to expelling um, or interrupting the education of kids who are um, using drugs. Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I know that these are uh, different approaches that schools are trying to take, but there's no question that this is, um, at least in part, uh, thanks to aggressive marketing of cannabis in California and other places where it's being legalized. Um, It is being intensively marketed Some of that marketing is directed at youth. We actually have a research project going now looking at um, marketing and um, what marketing is attractive to kids, what marketing is being directed at kids. We definitely see marketing um, directed at youth. I haven't seen a 
ton clearly directed at youth of color, but some examples of it. Um, but it also, uh, that also depends on where the advertisement is being carried and who's being exposed to that. And we don't have that analysis. You know, where is the billboard going? Um, and who are the, you know, what are the children who are going to see that billboard look like? Um, we definitely have research showing that kids who are exposed to billboards, for example, are more likely to use and more likely to develop dependency. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the product's being promoted. It's being promoted in ways that uh, definitely expose youth. Um, California's laws in particular are lax, like New York's looking at advertising regulations that would be much more restrictive on where and how you could advertise. Um, and uh, we're going to get the result that you would expect if our kids are exposed to marketing and uh, promotion. And it's, it's going to be a problem for them. It's going to be a problem for their education. Children are the future. Bay Area mom, by the way, is an educator. Uh, so she's in the classroom on a regular basis uh, and seeing what's happening to the children uh, and what have you. She said middle school, middle school. So what should we do? I'd ask her. Oh, I'd let's see. Her, what should we do? <laughs> what, what do you think, Bay Area mom? What should we do? What do you think? You're a middle school teacher. Um, well, uh, funny. Well, um, I noticed in Oakland there's a great deal of can- dispensaries in Oakland, uh, a great deal. Um, I think we should uh, replace the current system with the system of justice and maybe they won't have to crutch onto these uh, things to cope in Oakland. Yeah. In the meantime, um, have some kind of uh, no drug tolerance. I know if I'm selling drugs within a 500-mile uh, distance of a school or, or, or so many feet, I'm sorry, from a school, I, I'll go to jail. But if the children are under the influence at school, nobody's really doing anything. And it could be some of the teachers are under the influence at school just to cope with uh, the students. So, uh, replace the current system. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's a complex problem. You know, some places are letting dispensaries open a block or two away from school. Um, the state's, state law only says 600 feet. Um, we've encouraged jurisdictions to use a minimum of 1,000 feet from the school, but only a minority across the state use that large buffer. Um and, uh, but that, you know, even keeping dispensaries away from schools and stores away from schools is part of it. But it's, you know, I, I think having our kids have um, social resources and coping skills and all those other sports that not have them turn to this stuff is also important and limiting marketing. Thank you. For sure, for sure. The caller at 1159, we did hear you. Uh, they, I noted that here, I'm in uh, Seattle, Washington. I noted that here, uh, some of the first, early, not all, but certainly some of the earlier dispensaries that I saw, I noted like, wow, I have walked 
from a school, elementary school, no, oh, excuse me, middle school, middle school. I've walked from a middle school to a dispensary without much effort. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And you'll see vape shops and smoke shops are often located right across the street from the high schools. The San Fernando Valley Partnership in L.A. did a whole study of that and found you know, a huge percentage of high schools with vape shops right across the street because the city never stopped it. Um, and, you know, if we don't watch it, we'll, we'll have cannabis places right next door. Here in Berkeley, um, the avenue that's right by the university where we've got, you know, tens of thousands of young people, you know, has several cannabis dispensaries located right one right after the other. You know, those folks, their brains aren't 26 yet. That's right. Caller at one one five nine. Did you have a question for Doctor Silver? One one five nine. Yeah, greetings, guys, and greetings, Doctor Silver. Uh, Doctor, um, are there any constructive benefits from um, smoking the sort of THC that is being um, administered these days and, and being um, sold? If, if any, can you share what constructive benefits could could come from smoking this sort of marijuana, if any? I don't think there are any constructive benefits from smoking high-potency concentrates, for example, or using um, the high-potency flower. Um, I don't treat patients with medical marijuana, um, so I don't have personal experience in providing treatment, but we have interviewed several uh, medical marijuana um, physicians who are actually a few of the ones who are serious practitioners, um, not just people who sign cards. Um, And they generally tell us that they use very low doses, that what they find to be effective when they are doing um, medical marijuana treatment is, is quite low doses of modest doses of both CBD and THC when they're treating people. Um, and that these very high-potency products are not the products that they need. Uh, so, again, um, and that often if you give too high a dose, you habituate somebody and lose the, the medical benefits um, for those patients. Uh, but, again, I'm not, that's not my personal area of expertise. Um, but the, these high-potency products, 30% flour and... and um, Vape cartridges and dabs and waxes and shatters. There's there's no health benefit to those, um, and we're really just figuring out what the real health benefits are and what the right dose um, for those products are. In fact, we recommend that retailers in our model laws for California, for example, that retailers be required to stock lower dose products. You know, many of them only stock these high potency products now. And we think they should be required to offer consumers lower dose products as well uh, so that they at least can choose. Um, Just another comment I wanted to make, if you want to see, if you're in California and you want to see what's going on um, in your local community, you can go to our website, which is www.gettingitrightfromthestart.org, www.gettingitrightfromthestart.org. And we have a section there that has scorecards for every local jurisdiction in California that allows uh, legal cannabis sales. 
and it tells you what your jurisdiction is doing or not doing on some of these key issues, whether it's equity and licensing or um, getting rid of flavors or controlling potency and things like that, um, what they're doing with their taxes. Um, so you can find out the score of your jurisdiction uh, and take action on it if you live in California. Um, on our website and a couple of other states, I think Michigan is uh, studying and doing something similar. Thank you. Thank you, um, Dr. Taylor. Thank you, um, Gus, for having the program. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, now, I think we nabbed all of our folks who dialed in, got all of our uh, questions asked and what have you. It's going to uh, share the address. Uh, let's see. Did I get? Yep. Getting it right from the start dot org. Uh, you can go to the website, get more information, uh, especially we have lots of listeners who are in the California area. Go get more resources, uh, even about the jurisdictions, about where these dispensaries are. That itself is fascinating. Is that information at the website as well? Yeah, go to the section on our work and local California local scorecards, and you can see the scorecard for where you live if they allow retail sales. Getting it right from the start.org. Sharing it on Twitter as we speak. Uh, it has been a hoot. Ooh, have thank you. you. Oh, for sure, for sure. At least we can do. Uh, it has been grand. Have, well, I guess before you, you get out of here, I will ask Are you familiar with Dr. Francis Cress Welsing? Have you heard that name before? Uh, no, I didn't know her. Okay. I appreciate um, learning about her. Okay. She's a medical doctor. She uh, passed on in 2016, right at the beginning of the year. But she was with us. The whole reason your work stood out to me immediately. She was with us, medical doctor and a general and child psychiatrist. Her life's work, I think uh, I could say accurately <laughs> without overstepping, uh, was to replace white supremacy with justice. And in 2013, she said... Hey, I'm a little bit cautious about all this legalizing cannabis, even though they're saying it's going to work against racism. She said, hey, I'm working with patients. They're presenting as psychotic. Like I see, you know, she said it's in uh, medical literature right now that I'm seeing people talk about this. She was saying this in 2013. Does that surprise you at all? She looks sounds like a lady with a lot of foresight. The, the reports of psychosis go back more than 100 years. From There were reports from the Indian Hemp Commission over 100 years ago on that. Um, but uh, And there's been evidence emerging for, for many decades. So she knew, her, she knew what she was talking about. In addition to, obviously, she sounds like she was seeing it in person um, with individuals. So, yeah, again, nobody should go to jail for this stuff, but nobody should go to the hospital either. And we've got to figure out a way to balance those Mm. Great way to start it and end it. Nobody should go to jail for cannabis. Nobody should go to the hospital either. We have been chatting it up. Dr. Lynn Silver, getting it right from the start. O R G. Thank you kindly for chatting with us. Always great to give tips for parents. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Wednesday evening in sunny California. Oh, oh, Gus, did I make one pitch, too? Oh, yes, ma'am. Go Let's on our it. website 
and click on Take Action on the page you're at about the Cannabis Right to Know Act and tell your assembly member to vote for it. Because <laughs> that's one that's going to put out some information on these health effects uh, will only pass with your support. So go on our website, gettingarightfromthestart.org, uh, take action and send a note to your assembly member to vote for more information for people. Thank you. Sorry. Getting it right from the start dot o r g visit the website get the warning labels on those thc products dr lynn silver much obliged we will post the info of the website promptly uh enjoy the rest of your evening and great luck with the campaign to inform folks thank you take care everybody evening evening dr lynn silver information on cannabis things to know especially for parents thought that was so great specifics she didn't jump up and down oh my god you're gonna use cannabis i'm gonna kill you and chomp your head off and you're gonna be grounded for the next you know it's not the worst thing ever small dose if you want to try it stay away from that crazy stuff the dab same thing i wonder why they call it a dab Anything more than a dab might kill you or crack your brain computer or something. That's maybe that's why they call it a dab and then shatter. I think we already talked about that. Stay away from all of that stuff. If you're going to do an edible or something, don't eat the whole thing. Just take a small piece. Try a little bit. See how you feel. Don't go overboard can be dangerous risky your brain is still developing can't be said enough your brain is still developing well into your 20s late 20s protect the brain computer I cannot believe we were not saying sobriety would be best back in 2013 but we are all still Still learning. Uh, we'll take a quick break and then uh, we'll be right back here, folks. Thoughts, observations, uh, if their minds or what have you changed again over the last 10 years. Maybe folks didn't get to hear the recap of, of what uh, what folks had to say way back in 2013. But if anything, man, the grandcester, I hope I doubt it'll happen that way. But wow. Dr. Frances Cresswellsing. So one, she got hands down, pass away a year before the election and bam, called the election that everybody got wrong, called it accurately and arrogantly that this was going to happen. Donald Trump, your next president. That is for sure one. Back up off me, Dr. Welsing. I know what I'm talking about. Flagrantly, she said in 2013, like, ooh, correlation with psychosis. Might want to be careful about all that cannabis, especially all of this high potency cannabis products that they got right now. Like, whoa. At the time she said that recreational cannabis was only legal in two states. Quick break, and then we'll be right back if y'all have commentary to share. The cows context of white supremacy. We'll be right back. Hold your thoughts. Let's see.
from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in the air and all like that, and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give them some bling-bling. It's like giving an animal a brand-new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by, in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way. And indirectly see ourselves that way. Yes, context of white supremacy. Wow. Two programs. All right, posted Dr. Lynn's information. Bang. Getting it right from the start. Uh, two programs. We'll give folks thoughts on what they have to say. Uh, the program, Cannabis, all that, especially parents, stand by. I uh, just wanted to share uh, one tidbit because this did come up on the program today. Uh, we had a listener. The question that gets asked. Uh, who do you think is more confused about racism? Uh, sometimes we've asked, uh, who do you think is more confused? I think today I ask, who's more informed? That's generally the way that I ask, who's more informed? So a listener wrote in, Greetings, Gus. I'm trying to come up with a way to phrase this question to see if we could trap a suspected white supremacist into answering this question truthfully. Perhaps you could uh, could phrase it like this. Whom do you think is more confused about racism, the racist white supremacists or their black victims? I appreciate your contribution in trying to solve this problem. Much obliged. Uh, at least my view, if you ask it that way, that provides so many opportunities for individuals classified as white to be deceptive dishonest. Uh, I think for one, many 
many individuals. They promote the perception, the belief, the lie that you have racists. We think we heard some of that today. You have racists who are not aware. They're not informed. That's widespread. You hear that from white people, non-white people, that you have many white people. Uh, they're delusional about racism, white supremacy. So one way that this would allow is you could say, well, hey, you do have some white people or even some racists where they're just delusional. They just go along and support concepts and are just blind or whatever and don't even see how the things that they do or don't do are racist. They would have one set there. And then they even have some who say that some of the people who practice racism, that they are just idiots, that they're not informed, that they're not, you know, they didn't go to Harvard or whatever, that they're just down and out, no count white people who are not very smart about anything. So I feel like it allows for a lot of the the ignorant racist and just the white person who might not even be a racist per se. They're just ignorant. They're just not aware in general. It would allow for a lot of those types to totally escape. I could be incorrect, but certainly people can think about that. Uh, and I think, too, anytime there's a distinction. Oh, that was the other one, too. Anytime if you if you ask it that way and you say, well, hey, do you think the racists, white supremacists are more confused or do you think that their black victims are more confused if you and I always say non-white people I don't say black victims I always say non-white people if you do it that way there are a sizable contingent of folks who believe not all individuals classified as white are racist so not only do we allow some of the white people they're just ignorant and they're confused or whatever even some of the racists are ignorant and confused there are some white people who aren't racist at all. So now we've got lots of different groups of white people who are no longer in consideration for being informed about racism. That's one of the reasons for there are several reasons that I would not ask it that way. That's a big one, too, though, that, yeah, many people submit that not all white people are racist. Is that true? Even how would we know that that's true? in a system of white supremacy where it seems very difficult to even verify if a person is a racist. Anyway, folks who had thoughts uh, on what they heard from Dr. Lynn Silver, white woman, always fascinating, especially when we have programs where I can even give folks, we've been here for 13 years. Sometimes we will talk to guests where the information I think is constructive, even though it's not directly focused on white supremacy racism. Judith Van Lason is one that comes to mind. There have been many others. This was one. Didn't start asking her if she was white, definition, all of that. More than an hour passed before we got to, oh, yes, white woman. Yes. Definition of racism, which was interesting. And even the who's more informed, which was interesting. That's some of the structuring, even those programs. And even though I didn't mention racism until about an hour, about 70 minutes into the program, she brought it up. It had come up a number of times before we even got to that point in the program, which is not surprising at all there are very few topics if any you can discuss 
where racism is not going to be front and center in the conversation. Last thing I'll just say, would have been great if we could have got Ari to participate. Not that it was required, but I mean, hey, if we want to make sure we are not getting distracted about the focus of all of this and impact on young people whose brain computer is still developing. She talked to us, hey, the mental health impact this is having on my child. That is exactly what Dr. Welsing warned about a decade ago. And I mean, to the letter, black male, she was talking about her black male child. 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Star 6-1 if you have thoughts, commentary to share, listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Two programs for the day. Uh, folks with commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Yes, sir. Heard both of you. Let's see, we get a nine zero two nine, and then we'll get retired firefighter. Uh, thank you. Um, one of the things I, I, I have to admit, I wanted to, I, I came to my mind later on as as she was speaking, especially with brain effects, was I've noticed that most of the peers that I've known that have done. Or, or smoked marijuana at early stages in their life and continue to smoke. And, and this, I mean, tell me if anybody else has seen this, but I noticed that they almost stay in that age bracket. Almost like they, if they started it when they were teenagers, they almost, even if they're 30 or 40 years old, they still function like teenagers. And, and I found it very Odd, and, and I've noticed that across the board with most people who abuse um, substances and marijuana being one of them. But it was just something that I, I thought about while she was speaking about the, the brain effects. And I wonder if anybody else noticed that as well. The system of white supremacy is pretty retarding, uh, meaning delaying the development, maturity of non-white people in general uh, I would say so I think that happens for a lot of non-white people for a myriad of reasons although I am certain uh, or I could see logically uh, how cannabis could contribute to that process uh, and just not having people expending all of their energy correctly into developing and doing all of the constructive things that they could be doing. I could see that. Let's see. Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, when uh, you uh, asked her about, uh, you know, the, the uh, question uh, that we asked uh, the white guests, about uh, who's most confused, uh, who's who is more 
uh, knowledgeable uh, about racism, white supremacy, a white person, a non-white person, your detail, I thought, was probably the most concise that I've heard uh, uh, to a white person, but she still was able to escape the 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 uh, the, dis- the description. You you remember the description that you gave after you asked the question? The uh, hello. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. In terms of you, you gave you gave you gave a. In terms of uh, who's more informed, what it is, how it works, daily operations, is that the detail you're talking about? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. That 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 was that that was I thought that was very, very, very uh, uh concise that would place a white person in a position to where they would have to answer the question. Of course, the laughter that she was, she was, uh, exhibiting, uh, was a telltale about, about, uh, her being pervasive, uh, on the, uh, the question, on the question and the questions on the subject, on the subject matter, uh, the laughter, uh, but, uh, one thing, one thing that is a great sign is when a white person starts saying things like conscious or uh, conscious or unconscious. She says something similar to that during her discourse on racism and white supremacy. In other words, oh, well, some white people are not really aware that they are practicing racism, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And what I think what I think that is, that is a, that is a out, uh, on white people's behalf, uh, uh, intellectually to avoid, to avoid, uh, articulating on the, on the issue and taking responsibility for, for establishing racism, maintaining it, expanding it and refining it. Uh, but, uh, those are my thoughts on, on that, on that period in time, which I, which ultimately is the most important part of a pro of any program or any conversation with a white person is, is that particular point. She, she was making some helpful tips on, you know, through her profession and whatnot, but what's more so important is what she can Offer to us as as a white person, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, consistency with that answer, because and everybody says the same thing, which also should stand out when all the different white people that we've talked to and all the different locations around the world and different professions and different subject matters. And they all say the same thing that 
non-white people are more informed because we experience white supremacy, racism. Then, when you say, well, okay, you're white, you didn't experience racism, but you're informed about it, even with that, you see the resistance. Like, it can't just be, oh, yeah, 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 you know, trying to do the little bit that I can. I'm still learning, but, you know, no, it's what, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. We heard, I think, what did we get today? Well, well, you know, I, just, I have been, you know, impacted by it. I mean, I think we've all been impacted by it. Growing up, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's not what you said. Like, you did not give some sort of general everybody is impacted like you used impacted in a very specific context which you know like that's the sort of thing where I point out and be like see that's white people deliberately willfully practicing racism and again I'm just left aghast why is that so important to lie and insist that non-white people are the experts on what racism is and how it she just told us in the same conversation man I've been talking about this race thing since the 1980s probably a lot of y'all weren't even born we're talking about low birth low birth rate of the negras when I was in med school 40 years ago That means you're not ignorant about racism, right? Why does that happen with every single white person? Definitely one to ponder. Other folks commentary, they want to make sure they get in. Everybody satisfied? Got the comments in? They need to share. Grant, we'll assume folks are good. We should be talking about some of these same issues even as the book club continues because there's been so much reefer madness uh, in the text and workplace reefer madness, no less, uh, with Ernie Smith, black male. Uh, talking about how he and uh, Joey 22 consumed cannabis on the job. Talked about over and over, probably get even more of that as we get closer to the trial. But we'll be here tomorrow for the book club. Normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward to it. Double duty. Tough day. Joey 22, we did our double duty uh, today. Hopefully constructive. Uh, if anything, I think she said it best. Like, hey, I don't think... This should be a reason to be locking up black people, cannabis. No, but I'm not going to sit here and whoopee recreational cannabis. And that is going to be great for black people. Like, no, I did not think that 10 years ago. I do not think that now in any way, shape, form. Hopefully we'll be able to get, uh, as I said, some of the folks who've looked at even, hey, is this helping to keep a lot of black people? out of prison or do we just have all this you know kooky products fruity pebbles and all the rest of it 
to make individuals classified as white a lot of money and then hey even if you don't have a whole lot of folks going crazy and all the rest of it do I think this is going to be best to having a greater number of pregnant black mothers non-white mothers using cannabis during pregnancy do I think it's going to be constructive to have a greater number of middle school 13, 12 year old, 14 year old black children using cannabis does that sound like we're moving in the direction of universal woman, universal man I'm going to say no, you can think on that one, come to your own conclusions Uh, again we'll be here tomorrow book club 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Thursday neutralizing workplace racism and Saturday compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific pulling tough days or I guess at least a long week in the middle of the summer today was like the warmest day in the calendar year 2022 here in Seattle it was like 82 here today at the warmest part of the day I believe Uh, I don't believe we've had any days that have been that warm Uh, this year. I think we're supposed to have even a few days of warm weather. Oh, it didn't quite get to 82, but it was at least 80 today. So very warm. Uh, I was, you know, kind of bittersweet. At least I got to sit outside and enjoy the sunshine. Uh, Anywho, much obliged for folks tuning in. We didn't miss anybody. Everybody commented who needed to. Grant, Grant, if you missed out, you can save it till this weekend. Um, the Grandcester, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, trying to have us getting in the correct direction, correct direction, also pointed towards universal woman, universal man, wanted our brain computers working to their best, their greatest capacity we will solve this problem talking even that when she gave her response in her 20th visit she was talking to a retired firefighter there I think his uh, offspring was present she said hey sobriety stay away from alcohol and drugs mention them both not going to help us solve any problems not taking us the direction we need to go With that, sobriety would be best. Can't be emphasized enough. They had old Dr. Dre and Snoop at the Super Bowl this past year down in California, no less. They didn't do express yourself. If they did, I missed it where he said, I don't smoke weed or cess. Did they do that one? I don't remember if they did that one chronic this and chronic that and all the rest of it anywho uh, if you're out and about this is not the time for confrontations with strangers Uh, I would be all about exiting Uh, someone is being rowdy and hostile in public Uh, if you're in a vehicle you are sober you are buckled up you are not on a mobile device Uh, we want all of our attention and we want to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no.
That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. A victim. Right. A victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>